Jasmine's ready. All right, we're ready. All right, so we're going to start. You guys want to learn your Bible? All right, you are going to get an Old Testament overview today at Mach 5. So we're going to we're starting to do a series. I'm calling it The Tale of Two Prophets. And so we're going to look at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And if you don't know who these two cats are, you're going to know by the end of the month or probably the end of the next six weeks. It's important, though, if you want to need to know who Elijah is and who Elisha is, you have to know why they were necessary, why God called them forth. And you need to know the setting into which they found themselves. And in studying the lives of Elijah and Elisha and studying the history of the nation, one of the things that's going to become clear is how God was so eager and intentional to work with his people. And if he did that then, he wants to do even more now. The story of Elijah and Elijah basically take place in the books of First and Second Kings. So again, we're going to go into the Old Testament. So let me just help you guys out because I know we don't have a lot of context for our scripture, particularly in a city like Miami. People are like, Bible, what's that? I thought that was like a like a paperweight or something. I mean, I don't even know. Wasn't that something I just look at or, you know, put my hand on when I, you know, isn't that what that's for? So the book of First and Second Kings, what happened is a nation of Israel came into a kingdom. They were designed to be a theocracy. So God called his people to himself when he called them out of Egypt, right? So lots of promises leading up to the formation of the nation. And then when he finally formed the nation, his intention for them was to be a theocracy, which basically means God was their king, that he intended to lead them. He was gonna, they were going to be a people like no other people. They were under his rule, under his reign, under his kingdom. But the people weren't happy with that. They wanted to be just like everybody else. And so they said, give us a king just like everybody else. And so they ended, God ended up giving into their demands because it's like, okay. And so God gave them a king just like everybody else. And it actually worked against them in the long term. But what ended up happening was, well, they were designed to be that, but God's intention was that they were to be under a theocracy. And so the book of First and Second Kings are the stories that relate to the kingdom era of the first and in the, of two books written to chronicle the, the, the acts of the kings and the events that happened during the kingdom reign. And then you have First and Second Chronicles. Everybody say First and Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles. They're mirrored books. So they, they tell essentially the same stories, but First and Second Chronicles are written to tell things that were left out in First and Second, in First and Second Kings. Okay, so if you get that, and most believe this is all up in the air, but they believe First and Second Chronicles were written by Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra and Nehemiah wrote First and Second Chronicles. This again is the theory. It's not necessarily nobody can say, but they know that they were written, and we know that they're established books in the Old Testament. So if you want to know what First and Second Kings are about, it's about the events that took place under the kingdom when Israel wanted a king. This is what took place. It actually starts a little further back, but I mean, I'm, I start I start having these debates. Well, no, that's not really true, Kevin. It, that, it goes back here. Yeah, I'm all up here having this theological debate with myself, so just bear with me. Uh, and so you have First and Second Chronicles. It's a mirror of First and Second Kings, but there's a, there's additional stories within the Chronicles. All right, God's intention was that His people be ruled by Him. They wanted to be a people just like everybody else. The problem is, is we're not a people that is just like everybody else. Even as Christians, we are not like everybody else. We're peculiar people. We're a wonder. People are to look at us and go, man, those people are peculiar. 
These people are weirdly wonderful. That's what they're supposed to be. So you always knew you're weird, so just go ahead and give yourself permission to be weird. You're all right. right? So God intentioned that his people be ruled by him, that they would be under his kingdom, and that they would literally be a kingdom of priests. That's what he told them in the book of Exodus. When they brought out of, in, and they were, came out of Egypt, God told them, you are going to be my nation of priests. Through you, I'm gonna, you're going to minister to me, I'm going to minister to you, and you are going to minister to the nations. That was God's intention. But they wouldn't follow it. And so ultimately they decided they didn't want to be a kingdom of priests. And so therefore they came under the rulership of other things. They began to serve the culture, began to serve other gods. The problem with that concept is the people constantly distanced themselves from the invitation of intimacy. Let me say that again. The problem and the unfulfilled desire of God was a result of the people intentionally distancing themselves from God's invitation to intimacy. This is the same problem that we have within the church. God's plan hasn't changed. His methods have, but the arcing plan that he has had since the beginning of time hasn't changed. God's desire in your life, in my life, in the life of his church is to fulfill a mandate and release power and minister to the nations from us unto him, from him unto us, and from us unto the world. Or unto one another, if we want to get really technical, because we're to minister one to the other first. And then once we learn to minister one to the other, we in turn are to be the ministers unto the world. That's God's intention. That was his intention there. That's his intention now. Okay? But the people would constantly distance themselves. Therefore, there was no activation. If we don't get intimate, there's no activation. The power of God flows through intimacy. Into me you see. Into you I see. That's what intimacy is. Giving God permission to see into your life and tell you where you're off. (gasps) Well, I don't want that. Well, there's not going to be any flow then. When God looks at you and shows you an intimacy in your life and shows you, we just did a whole thing, Radical Five. Radical Five. And some of you, you take that Radical Five and you apply it. You say, this is what the Lord wants. Boom. Others of you, you sit there and I lay out five clear paths of God's will. This is God's will for your life in clear terms. Whoop, right over your head. Or, eh, I don't know. I don't know. Seems like a good idea, but I don't know. You'll stay the same. You will not change. You wonder why there's no change? You will not change. Same thing happened in the nation of Israel in the older times. God told them, Moab rests on his lees. He does not change. He does not respond to the instruction that is given to him, nor does he empty himself of what he has already received. Therefore, his scent remains. No change. Because they will not respond to the instruction that's given to them. Whoop, right over their head. Or, my favorite, as if we want to have a debate with the Lord as to what's right and wrong. Well, you know, I know you say that, Jesus, but you know, I just want to do it my way. Or I think this is what you meant, even though he says it clearly. That's our problem. His activation works through intimacy. And when God says, into you I see, this is what you need, let me show you, and we pull away, there's no activation. That's what happened with these people. Israel failed over and over again because they recused themselves from his invitation to intimacy. That is the problem. 
You are invited into intimacy. I release intimacy in the room before we begin. Let the Holy Spirit come. That's, an, that's one aspect of intimacy. And some of you, you just lock right down. Nope, not going to do it. Nope, this is too weird. Nope, just get me out of here. Nope. If you think Christianity is anything but spiritual, you are greatly deceived. God seeks worshipers who worship him how? Oh, that's exactly right. In spirit and in truth. Somehow we think we can avoid the Spirit. We can't avoid the Spirit. Jesus said, it's, my, it's your benefit that I go, for if I don't go, Holy Spirit won't come. He says, Holy Spirit's better than me. Oh, it's just all about Jesus. Well, Jesus said it's all about the power of the Spirit that I'm releasing. Somehow we got to reconcile this. Somehow we got to reconcile our lives with what God wants and what we're doing. And if what we're doing isn't on page with what God wants, I don't care what your opinion is. Your opinion doesn't matter. Let's just say that. This is going to be therapy for some of you. My opinion doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Well, I was raised in America. I was raised in a home where my voice mattered. Not to Jesus. He's not asking you questions. He's not, it's not open to debates. The invitation and the exchange that happens with him comes after you're on page with him in obedience. Once you're in obedience and in his lane and you're operating according to his design, he'll talk to you all day long. Amen. All day. You want to know something? He tells you. The reason a lot of people don't hear God is because he's already told them something and they don't want to do it. A deaf and dumb spirit comes upon the church and comes upon, well, I'm prophesying. A deaf and dumb spirit comes upon the church and upon God's people when they act out of a heart of disobedience. You wonder why you can't hear? Where's the disobedience? You wonder why you can't see clearly? Or you wonder why you mumble, stumble, and fumble? The question is, Lord, where am I out of alignment? What is in me that is off? What is my attitude that is wrong? What is the lies that I believe? Where are my direct acts of disobedience that are impeding your spirit from working in my life? God can only work in concert with your willingness. He can do nothing more than what you will allow him to do. It's true. We limited him. Jesus couldn't do many miracles in Nazareth. It was, did he not want to? No. Their perception of him, they believed lies about him. They had a perception of him that was not true. He's just the carpenter's son. They could not see him for who he really was. Therefore, they would not allow their hearts to be open to receive. They couldn't put their brain in neutral long enough. They worshipped their ideology more than they worshipped him. They worshipped their opinions more than they would worship him. That's a problem. It's the same thing in the Old Testament. People would go off, they would worship other gods, they would distance themselves from God's intimacy. They'd go, I don't know, we don't want to do that, you know. We want to go over here and do this. Everybody else is doing this, this is what we want to do. We don't want to worship like that, we want to worship like this. And as they worshipped other gods, inevitably they would be led into something called bondage. When people worship other gods, and gods in our culture don't necessarily mean idols. We don't have statues. Maybe some of you have a culture where there's statues. Our culture, it's more ideologies. We worship the intellect. <gasps> we worship human reasoning more than we worship spirit. If we don't understand it and it makes no rational sense to us, we reject what we cannot understand. That is intellectual idolatry. Call it what it is. It's idolatry nonetheless. We have coveting hearts. We want things at the expense of other people. We don't care what we got to get, what we have to sacrifice, or who we have to deny. We're going to get that. Including the Lord, by the way. 
We will deny things that rightfully belong to him in order to gain what we want. That's idolatry. Let's just be clear, okay? You can keep being an idol worshiper. You can keep doing that if that's what you want to do. But let's just be clear on what it is. You understand? Let's no longer be in ignorance. Let's at least understand what it is that this, what these things entail or what's involved here. We worship attitudes. Well, I believe God's like this. I believe God's like that. That's idolatry. It's not God as you understand him to be. It's God as how he declares himself to be. You understand that? This is a big plague within the church, particularly man, we're redef- trying to redefine the church. We have this redefinition of God that's not in his word. That's idolatry. Sorry, it's what it is. Say, that offends me. Good. Wonderful. Then we are making progress today, Christian. <laughs> he offends you to change you. The only reason you're offending is because it's pushing against you. It's revealing something. Offense is simply this. If, you, if it hits you, you just go, oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. Offense isn't meant to push you away. It's meant to bow you down in order that he may lift you up. That's why. That's right. So when God offends you, or if there's something that he says that offends you, it's not meant to make you turn. It's meant to lower you. Because God exalts the humble, but he resists the proud. He's showing you something in your life that's an arrogant position or an arrogant posture or something that you're holding that's against him. That's all he's doing. And the pride will prevent you from the process or the path that he has for you. So when God offends you, it's in order to bring you low. It's a simple process. He doesn't reject you. He never rejects you. He just wants you to go, Lord, I'm messed up. What do you got for me? Here's that attitude. You're absolutely right. I do have that issue. I don't want to have that anymore. Here, you can have that. That's what he wants. God raises up when people were in in the Old Testament. God would raise up someone called Judges. So in the book, there's a book in the Bible called the book of Judges. Judges were deliverers. The people would disobey God, do it their own way. Frank Sinatra, we're going to do it our way, whatever we want, how we want it. God understands. Well, yeah, okay. And what, that, what those decisions would lead to is they would lead to bondages. And so inevitably, the people would be in bondage and God would send a deliverer to get them out of bondage. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you on your worst day. He loves you even when you're against you. You put yourself in bondage and Jesus is working for your freedom. And he's like, can you just partner with me so that I can help bring you the freedom that I want to give you? No, Lord, I like the bondage. Okay, carry on, my wayward son. Go right ahead. Until you get tired of the bondage, then and only then can you come out of it. Problem with the judges is judges look like this. These are just a few of them. Samson, Gideon, Jephthah, Deborah. The problem when God would use the judges is that the judges were wild. They were very, uh, let's just say, their lifestyles were in conflict with their calling. One of the things the Bible is very clear about is it shows people as they are. Oh, I know we like to worship these people. Gideon was a man of God. Oh, Gideon. Did you see Gideon lead him by the water hole and deny until he got the army done? Oh, what a man of God. What a man of faith. Have you read that story? He freaked out the whole way. He was tripping. He didn't want to do it. And he was afraid. Samson, oh, what a man of God Samson was. Oh, Samson, till he met Delilah. No, it was long before Delilah. Samson had a woman problem. You ever read it? Right out of the gate. He goes up to his dad. He said, there's a woman of the Philistines. There's a woman of the unbelievers, and she's fine, dad. 
I need you to go get her for me. Those are the first words out of his mouth. It wasn't just Delilah. He had several women preceding Delilah. And the Lord was trying to deal with him. Samson, get, get, get what's below your belt line under control. Can you get what's down here? Can you put, that's why they wore a belt. Did you know that? The Jews were required to wear a belt to remind them that their upper regions are separated from their lower. And that they were to live their lives by the upper regions of their life, not the lower ones. It's one of the reasons why he told them to belt or gird their garments. was a constant reminder to say, this is your higher faculties. Don't be led by your lower faculties. And that's what Samson, Samson was like, kind of like this. That's how Samson. <laughs> that's why I like Miami. You guys are all, you guys laugh at something like that, you know? Gideon was a guy who liked gold, okay? Gideon delivers the people, right? Gideon delivers the people. You don't think these guys have issues? Gideon delivers the people, and they want to make him king. You know what Gideon says? I don't want to be your king, but y'all can give me cash. It's literally what he said. He didn't deliver the, he delivered the people. They're like, Gideon, man, wow, did God use you? And he's like, I know. But, you know, all glory be to God, but you guys can give me the gold. I'll give the glory to God. See, Samson had the girl problem, and Gideon had the gold problem. And the Bible says that Gideon made himself a golden ephod, when ephod was merely a vest that the priests wore. What the Bible's indicating was the article of worship in Gideon's life was the gold. That's what it's telling us. So Gideon's problem was he had a worshipful heart towards the gold. That's a problem. So their lives didn't, con their conflict with their calling. Jephthah was a guy, he was a prostitute's son. So if you don't think you come from a good family and God can't use you, guess again. He can use the outcasts. The outsiders become the insiders in Jesus' economy. He lifts the weary from the ashes. That's his specialty. His specialty is taking the nobodies and making them somebodies. Aren't you glad? And so he takes Jephthah, the prostitute's son, brings him in. But Jephthah's problem was, he was his worship and his ideology was too mixed with the cultures. And so every time Jephthah would do these amazing things, he would fall back into a pattern of taking pagan worship practices and calling them the worship of God. One of the most craziest stories in the Bible was Jephthah, returning from the battle, goes to his house and says, whatever comes out the door of my house, I'm going to offer to the Lord. Now maybe he was hoping his wife would come out the door, I don't know. <laughs> but his daughter came out the door. And the Bible says he sacrificed his own child unto the Lord. And people have a problem with that. Well, they have a problem with it because they don't understand the context. Jephthah, it wasn't that he didn't know any better, but he was so deluded with the pagan practices of his day. His faith was so intermingled that he, so no, he saw no wrong in the wrong. Because he was too intermingled with his ideology. Do we not see that in the church today? Yeah. We can't see the wrong in the wrong because our ideology is too mixed with foreign practices? So God couldn't carry Jephthah further because he was too mixed. Deborah and Jael, powerful women of God. The Bible really doesn't have much negative to say about them. I mean, Deborah did a great thing, and then you have to share. He's like, yay! You know, so Deborah and Jael, love that story. Jael was a judge too. They both go up against the fight. The men are too chicken. Deborah's like, look, the Lord's with you. 
come on, I'm a prophetess, and I'm telling you, the Lord's with you. And he's kind of like, I don't know. I'm not too sure. I'll go, but you come with us. And he said, God wants to honor you, the king, but because you won't take the honor, then the honor will come through me. And you will bear shame for that. But she led him. And Jael, another prophetess, she realized that the king of the, mili- of the army that they were going up against, she went into his tent while he was sleeping. Ready for this, ladies? She took a spike and drove it through his temple. And she killed the foreign king, Sisera. And Deborah and Jael, two women, led the, na- led the nation out of a bondage and it brought them into deliverance with intentional, direct action. You tell me. Probably were undefined, their, their lifestyles were in conflict, so God had to find a better way. Next slide. I'm getting to Elijah and Elijah. I'm getting there. Work with me. I'm going to have to go quick. God looks to redefine the system. He looks for a man and he finds a woman. He needs to re- redefine the system. The people that he, or he is calling are constantly misrepresenting him. They're doing what he wants, but their lifestyle is a complete misrepresentation. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so he has to redefine the system. And so he finds a woman named Hannah. Here you go, ladies. He's looking for a man that he can use, and he finds a woman who's willing to give him her child. She was barren. She didn't have a child. And she said, Lord, if you give me this child, he's yours. Guess what? Jesus said, absolutely. And she named him Samuel, which means asked of the Lord. And she devoted him to, 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 the, to the Lord. Samuel was different. God was going to use him not just as a judge, but as a prophet. We're going to make a transition from the judges unto the prophets. Samuel was raised in the atmosphere of the priesthood. What does that mean? He was taught the ways of God. He was shown how to honor God. He was shown the knowledge of the Lord. And he was taught to refine the refinements. All of the uh, liturgies and all of the things that were necessary that God had given the priesthood. God said, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to show him how to work this out. And I'm going to use him. So he shifts He says, this isn't working. I need another system. His plan was the same. He just shifted the system. And he chose Samuel. God wanted to use the priesthood. The problem was the priesthood was corrupt. We have a priest named Eli and his sons. They're the ones in charge of the whole atmosphere of God. And these guys got some serious issues. They refused to honor God. Didn't matter what God... The Bible says they had no heart for the Lord. That's literally what it says. Eli and his sons had no heart for the Lord. Well, a verse comes to my mind, but I won't say, well, I'll say it. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. Where's your heart, Christian? They refused to honor God. God was looking for the faithfulness of the priest, but they refused. They had no regard for the Lord. They refused to give to the Lord, and they took what belonged to God. So when the people would come to give their offerings, the offering was divided into threes. Jesus likes threes, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I don't know, everything's threes with him. I get, there's a big thing. So a portion of it would go to the temple to sustain it. A portion would go to the priesthood to sustain them. And a portion of it went directly unto God. They would literally burn it on the altar. They'd pour the wine, they'd throw the grain, they'd throw the meat. Barbecue for Jesus, okay? They would take the Lord's portion and they would call it their own. Problem. So the people would be bringing their offerings. Here's the houses. The priests would be dividing it. And they'd say, oh, this is the, here's the portion for the Lord. And they were supposed to give the Lord their first and their best. 
Well, Eli's son said, well, the best, the best is good for us. The best isn't necessary for God. I'm going to keep the best for myself. And so they took the portion of the Lord's offering and they kept it for themselves. They're mentioned in the, Old, in the New Testament as well, Hophni and Phinehas. So you don't think these guys stood out? They stood out very wildly. They took what was the Lord's. And what they were telling the people is the people, they were denying the people the right of honor to the Lord. And they were showing that God was greedy because he had all, he, all he wanted to do was just take from them. They were coming with honor and the priests were profaning God's honor. That's the one thing you don't touch if you're a leader. You don't touch the glory. You don't touch the glory. I had a pastor tell me three times, three things, right? When I was very young in ministry. And it works very well. <laughs> you don't touch the gold, you don't touch the glory, you don't touch the girls. You do that, you're going to be, in the, you're going to be a minister for a long time. It's true. Where do you see the downfall? You see the downfall, but we don't have a problem with men touching the glory. For some reason, we, we let them touch the glory. The glory is Jesus's and his alone. No one, no man gets glory. It is his. No flesh shall glory in his presence. My job is to bring the atmosphere of glory unto him. And I get to shine while it all happens. Happy day. But the glory is his. You get to shine too. That's the whole attitude. That's his whole attitude towards you, towards his people. They had no regard for the Lord's presence. Not only were they taking God's, God's portion, they were seducing women in the temple. So they probably had their shirts unbuttoned down to their navels with a big gold chain. Hey, girl. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm a priest. Yeah, I can lay hands on you. Let me minister to you. Let me just minister. Yeah. <laughs> they had no value for the Lord's presence. None at all. They taught that they taught, they showed that the Ark of the Covenant was like a trinket. They would haul it out whenever they had a personal need. They did not value nor honor the presence of the Lord. Another big problem. So the priesthood was corrupt. God couldn't use the people because they refused. God couldn't use the judges because they were inconsistent. God couldn't use the priesthood because it was corrupt. So he raises up the prophets. They were the seers. God's will to communicate to his people is unending. He wants to communicate to his people. And now he has no barrier. He's released his spirit. My sheep hear my voice. You understand that? Whereas before men needed an intermediary, before Christ came and tore the veil, the veil of the earth and the veil of the heavens, the heavens have been rent. Spirit has come. God has no barriers now between him and his people, except you. His barrier to you is not because of him, it's you. You have to just go all in with him even if you don't know what you're doing. The Lord will teach you the ways of intimacy if you are willing. There's no veil between you and God. If you're in Christ, the veil has been removed. If any man is in Christ, you are one with him. He raises up the prophets to see and speak to the people, to counsel the nation and teach them to go the right way. Next slide. This is what's going on. I'm tracking you through the history of the people to bring you to this point. Samuel began to multiply ministries. So Samuel, Hannah gives Samuel, raised in the priesthood. Samuel begins to minister unto the people. He first learns to hear the voice of God. Now he begins to minister unto the people. And you know what he says? Oh my goodness, this is too much. There's no way I can handle all of this. And so Samuel began to do something called the school of the prophets. And he raised up schools within the nation to multiply the prophetic ministry among the people. That's what he did. What would they teach it? What would he teach them? They teach them to train them to carry the mantle. The prophet wore a mantle. So it would be kind of like what Selena has on here over the shoulder. They would wear a mantle. 
They would put it up over their head. They would pray. There was all these things, but they carried a mantle. John the Baptist carried a mantle. It was camel's hair, right? So again, it was the crazy stuff. They would wear mantles to signify. And what it signified was that they carried the presence of the Lord. So the school of the prophets was to train them on how to properly carry the presence of the Lord. We carry him with great liberty. We carry him with great honor. But there are certain aspects of relationship that we are required to understand to minister with his spirit. It's not difficult. If you can recognize the principle of honor, you're going to get it all. It, all of it relates to a, to a principle of honor. It always is honor. You're probably not going to make a lot of mistakes if you minister in the spirit. If you're always in your heart, you have the idea of honor. When it, that's, very, that's the easiest principle. Everybody say it with me. When in doubt, honor the Lord. Uh-huh. Don't honor you, don't honor your neighbor, honor Jesus. Don't honor a culture, doesn't honor him. That's it. You learn to carry his mantle well. He taught them the ministry of worship. You would see that in the book of First and Second Samuel. The prophets would be ministering worship, and the atmosphere and the presence would be there. The king was walking among the sons of the prophets as they were worshiping. So clearly they were a ministry of worship. And when, they, when Saul came into the atmosphere of worship, boom, Saul started prophesying. Not because Saul was, was gleaned in the prophetic ministry, but because he was in the atmosphere of the prophetic, he just started prophesying. These schools were, came to the biblical prophets, not all but most. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all went to the schools of the prophets. Not all of them. Daniel didn't. Amos probably didn't. There's a few that didn't go through the schools, but most of them did. They were trained. Elijah definitely did. After the death of David and Samuel, God divides the nation. I don't have, to have time to get into this. I wasn't sure if I was going to throw it in there, but I was like on a roll, so I said, why not throw it in there? The nation became divided. I'm going to set the stage why Elijah was needed. Okay, so this is leading up to this point. David, Saul was the first king. David followed him. David was faithful. He had a son named Solomon who was faithful, then became unfaithful. And then God allowed the nation to become divided in the lifetime of Solomon's son. So David's grandson, literally there was a civil war, or it wasn't really a war, but the nation split. This is going to help you if you read your Old Testament, particularly the prophets. God always uses two languages. He'll say Israel and Judah. Israel and Judah. And you're thinking, well, aren't they the same? No. Israel refers to the northern kingdom. Judah's referring to the southern kingdom. It's referencing the split. So God now, instead of speaking to one nation, is having to speak to two. Israel in the north, they went way off the grid. Judah became faithful unto the Lord. And that's why the people typically say, I'm a Jew, because they get it from the word Judah, right? They split. The northern kingdom went wild. Southern kingdom tried their best to stay faithful. The nation was divided under Solomon's son named Rehoboam. Ready for this one? Bible tells us an interesting thing, and it's, it's, I'm, the, more, the older I get, the more this makes sense to me. When I was younger, I was like, ha, oh. ha, ha, but now that I'm older, it starts to make sense to me. Rehoboam became a king. His, his father died. He had all of his father's counselors come to him. You know who those are? The wise, the older people, the people that have life experience, the people that have raised kids, the people who have ran businesses. These people, these are like people who have lived life. The older, he takes counsel with the older people, and they tell him what to do. They say, listen, do, do better than your father did. Be merciful, be kind, be just. That's what they told him. The people endured a lot of hardship the last few years. Be gracious to them. So then he goes over to the 20-somethings, all of his friends, and they tell him, no, you got to be the man. you got to show them what time it is. You know, if your father was this way, you need to be worse. 
And so Solomon didn't listen to the older men and actually removed that from his council and began to set around him a vestige of 20-somethings who were now going to rule the kingdom. Well, knowing behold, that didn't work out too well. There is a problem in our American church when we tell everybody over the age of 30 or 35, there's the door. There's a problem, okay? You are operating according to a spirit of Rehoboam. When we celebrate and we put 25-year-olds over and make them a ministry leader over a guy who's been in ministry for 20-plus years, there's a problem. There's a problem. Somebody might not say it, but I'm going to say it, right? God told them in the book of Numbers they weren't allowed to minister until they were the age of 30. And do you know why? Because then they would be married, then they would probably have kids, they'd have had their butt kicked a few times, and they would be a little more humble. You know what I'm saying? When you're 21 years old or 23 years old, nobody could tell you anything. Can we all flash back? Okay? <laughs> you couldn't, I knew it all. I have arrived. I have supreme biblical knowledge and counsel in all things. Oh, yeah. Man, that was shown, soon shown to me. Rehoboam divides the kingdom, the kingdom and, the, and so the north goes with, with, uh, with a different line and the south goes this way. So the kingdom divided and it was because of his, son, his grandson's, David's grandson's foolishness. Next slide. We need to be careful. Careful. Jeroboam was a deconstructionist. So the guy who took over the north was a guy named Jeroboam. So Rehoboam went to the south. Jeroboam went to the north. And Jer Jeroboam basically de deconstructed Israel's entire form of worship. The way that they had always done it, Jeroboam's like, nah, I got a better way. I was thinking about this last night, you know, and I think we should do it like this. And I think we should worship like this. And it led to tremendous confusion. He set up his own system of worship, made it up as he went along. He literally was breeding corruption into the land, idolatry, godlessness, and bondage. From this, the product of this system of worship was 19, count them, 19 wicked kings in a row. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to every people. So he sets up a system of corrupt worship towards the Lord, and what happens? The government begins to slide into absolute total disarray. God calls forth a prophet named Elijah to go where? To the north. That's where the problem was. Elijah was cut from some really rough cloth. He would tell you what time it was. And he didn't blink. Okay? John the Baptist was cut from rough cloth. He would tell you what time it is, and he didn't blink. Oh, that's just not, you know, I just don't hear the loving tone in your voice. <laughs> Who told you that? Read what Jesus said. Tell me if you hear the loving tone in his voice. Brood of vipers. Who has warned you to flee the wrath to come? You know? That's... I mean, he goes on. That's not loving. Jesus would never call anyone a bunch of snakes. Really? He did. Elijah means Yahweh is God. Why is his name Yahweh is God? I like Elijah. My son's name's Elijah. So it means Yahweh is God. God came to proclaim his name among a people who were idol worshipers. And he said, I am God, and watch what I do through this guy. I'm going to show you I'm God. To call the people back to himself, to release the kingdom, and to activate the Genesis mandate. More on that next service. Next slide. i got to roll. I'm real far. Elijah came in a dark times. There was a king named Aha, no Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel. Little note on Jezebel. She's a very wicked woman. She opposed everything about the Lord. And she's married to the king of the north. Right? Start the same Game of Thrones here. King of the north. So she's married to the king of the north. 
It was a political alliance, and Jezebel wanted to insert her politics, her positions, her worship, everything into the nation. And so Jezebel was very anti everything that came to the Lord. Elijah was sent on a mission, came from a place called Gilead. So he was born in Gilead, and it means to advance with strength. So Elijah comes from a place of advancing strength. What is Elijah? To what, the story of Elijah, we're going to look at this in the next coming weeks. You're going to see one person can make a difference. You're going to see that you and Jesus are a majority. And you're going to see how God shapes life. Next slide. Last slide. Three things God does with Elijah. I'll just do this real quick. First thing God did with Elijah is he separated him. That's what he did. He sent him. He said, go shut up the heavens. Elijah goes, no rain, or whatever he said. So the heavens shut themselves up for three and a half years. Why? Well, the Phoenicians, which who was Jezebel, they were a trading people. So this whole pagan economy was based upon this, this, this trade and this exploit. God was shutting the whole system down. So if they had no rain, they had no crops. They were an agrarian society. And so he, in, his, in his former days, he said, when, the, when there is no rain, call out to me. So God is trying to get their attention through letting the famine come upon them. And Elijah said, it's not going to rain until somebody asks me, until, until I'd say. So he, Elijah goes and shuts up the heavens, and then God separates him. So he goes and hides out. And he goes to a place called the Ravine Kareth, the Kareth Ravine. Kareth means to cut down, or to be brought low, or to separate. So here's God calls this man. You want to know how Jesus works in your life? Okay, ready? I'm going to tell you. You may not like it, but you, some of you are going to be encouraged. You're like, yes, he's working, right? I knew it. I knew it all couldn't be bad. He's working. So he takes Elijah, he calls him, and then he sends him to a place of separation, kerith, or cut down. He brings him to a place of humility. And in this place of humility, he teaches Elijah that he is dependent upon no one but me. And until Elijah understood, because he sent ravens to feed him and sent him to a brook. And he taught him by separation and isolation from everything that he is that I alone am your source. I alone am the one that you can draw from. So God separates you from everything that you knew. The problem with a lot of us is we want to carry our old life with us. You can't. When he summons you, there's going to be a separation. And you're going to feel alone. And you're going to feel isolated. And you're going to feel disoriented from the world you once knew. But God will provide for you. And from, come on, yeah, we can give him glory. And from the separation, God teaches him dependency. And from dependency, God will teach him unconditional obedience. And once Elijah learned unconditional obedience, that's when it all began to roll. So I'm going to end it right here. Over the next coming weeks, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the lives of Elijah and Elisha. And I hope to show you some things that you can relate to, and I hope to show you some things that you can connect to. So my purpose today was to set this up and to set the tone and to set the atmosphere of what. If I just come out here and talk about Elijah, you have no connection point to what actually is going on. And you have no connection point to what actually brought the people to this point, to where this prophet was necessary, and to why this prophet stands out, and what, why, why Elijah would stand out. So I had to give you a context from behind all of this. And I pray you got something out of this. Come on. Let me pray for you. I'm out of time. Lord, I just bless you. I thank you so much. Your word is so living, it's so good, it's so rich. God, you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. And your word is just as relevant today as it was then. Your book is not some antique. It is alive and powerful. 
and the same atmospheres and the same attitudes and the same things that you moved through then, you move through now, but in a greater capacity with your spirit because there are now no barriers. So Lord, we honor you and I release no barriers into the lives of these people. I release your summon, I release your calling, I release your purposes, I release your mandate into their lives and upon the life of this church collective. Lord, we say it's all about you and we honor you with that. And let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. And may he give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. My soul longs for you.